does it matter if a young person does something online in COVID, whether that happens to have a Teenage Cancer Trust logo, a Click Sergeant logo, or an Ellen MacArthur Cancer Trust logo on the Zoom page? No, it doesn't. Actually, what matters is that young person is getting the support. And that's hopefully what the partnership does, is that it enables us to worry a little bit less about, is my logo front and centre? Worry more about, actually, is that young person getting the services that they need? I think the partnership will mean that young people are better supported. And that, at the end of the day, is what matters. Welcome to Season 2 of the Charity CEO Podcast, the podcast for charity leaders by charity leaders. This is the show that gets beneath the surface of issues, engaging in meaningful and inspirational conversations with leaders from across the sector. I'm the Vio Connor, and each episode I will be interviewing a charity leader who will share with us their insights, knowledge, and topical expertise on challenges facing our sector in these turbulent times. This show is for everyone who cares about the important work of charities. Today I'm speaking with Frank Fletcher, CEO of the Ellen MacArthur Cancer Trust. The trust supports young people with cancer, engaging them in outdoor activities to help rebuild their confidence and their lives after cancer. We talk about how the Trust pivoted to a virtual summer during 2020 and what it has learnt during the pandemic in order to better support young people recovering from cancer. We discuss the Trust's newly announced partnership with Teenage Cancer Trust and Click Sergeant, which is a clear move of leaving brand and logo at the door and focusing on what is best for young people. Frank shares his learnings through establishing this formal partnership and strongly encourages other charity leaders to follow suit. I hope you enjoyed the show. Hi, Frank. Welcome to the show. I'm really pleased to have you with us today. Oh, it's great. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very honoured and really excited. Really looking forward to chatting today. It'll be great. Yes, you're very welcome. And you know that we start the show with an icebreaker round. So if you're ready, let's dive straight in. Yeah, absolutely. I've been thinking about these most of the weekend, although they seem to change. So maybe I have the answers, maybe I don't. Go for your life. We shall see. So question one, what was your first job? So my first job was actually in Pizza Hut in Catford, South East London. I think you can learn more working in a fast food restaurant than anywhere else. I worked in the kitchen at Pizza Hut when I was about 16 and I stayed there for a few years and yeah, it was great. I met some wonderful people and yeah, you do learn about work, leadership, management, working for an organisation like that. So yeah, it was good fun. I enjoyed it. Not all the time, but... Fantastic. Life lessons from Pizza Hut. That's great. Absolutely. Too right. Question two. What would you say is your professional superpower? So I've been thinking about this quite a bit. And actually, I don't think I have one. So I've spent most of the weekend thinking, how am I going to answer what my superpower is? And I've actually decided that I don't have one. And actually, maybe we're expected as chief execs to have superpowers and maybe we just need to admit that we're human and we don't. So I'm afraid that is the one icebreaker question that I decided I didn't have an answer for, which is I don't have a superpower. So I'm afraid I'm going to let you down on that one. No superpower. Yeah, no, not let us down at all, Frank. Actually, that's a very nice reflection there that we are all just human beings trying to do the best that we can. Question three, What are three things that you could not have survived lockdown without? I'm very lucky. I've got a garden. 
and I really did enjoy my garden in the lockdown. I think I'd have found it really hard. I was very lucky I haven't had to self-isolate. I haven't had to stay at home, so I've, I've managed to get out every day and walk. And that actually, I think I'd have found self-isolating really hard. I know lots of people have had to do it and right that they did it, but I, I found that daily walk was really important. And I suppose Zoom in, in a depressing way. <laughs> yeah. We'd been in a pandemic, even 10 years ago, with technology the way it was 10 years ago. I think it would have been a very different pandemic. So I suppose technology being where technology is has really helped us during COVID. So garden, walking, technology. And actually, I was very lucky. I've, I've done lockdown with my family, which is, which has been really great. I wonder if anyone had bought shares in Zoom at the beginning of the pandemic, how that would be looking yeah. now. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Question four. And I wonder, Frank, if you had actually thought about this one. If you were a Spice Girl, which one would you be and why? <laughs> um, I hadn't thought about this one. I didn't know you were going to ask me this one. If I was a Spice Girl, which one would I be and why? Well, I'm definitely not posh. I'd love to say I'm sporty, and I do try, but I'm definitely not sporty. I don't know. I was quite like Ginger Spice. I always thought she was the one who, you know, had the most to say and... I'd probably be Ginger Spice, and that's not because I have I don't have ginger hair, but just because I think she was the one that was the loudest voice and had the most to say. There you go. I would be Ginger Spice. Wasn't expecting that as the answer. <laughs> I'll be honest. Well, I realised that I've asked a number of my female guests that question, and so in order to not appear sexist, I felt it was only fair that I asked the male guest as well. <laughs> right. And our final icebreaker question, if you had the opportunity to interview anyone in the world, dead or alive, who would it be and what one question would you like to ask them? I did think about this a lot. It's that sort of question, dinner party question that people ask you. And so I'd really like to meet Nelson Mandela for lots of reasons. Mm, He would be my choice too. Oh, good. The question I'd want to ask him would be around forgiveness and the fact that he was able to forgive I have lots of questions to ask him, so hopefully I'd get more than one. But if I only had one, I'd want to ask him about how he managed to forgive so effectively, I suppose is the word. But yeah, hopefully that would be one of many questions that we could continue. But yeah, it would be Nelson Mandela and how did you manage to forgive? Such a remarkable human being. uh, And I would see actually forgiveness was probably his superpower and now he did have a superpower definitely had lots of superpowers and probably one of his superpowers was forgiveness he definitely had superpowers you like indeed so frank let's start off now by talking about your organization the ellen macarthur cancer trust you've been the chief executive there for over 15 years so tell us about the charity who was ellen macarthur and what does the trust seek to do So the trust, we work with young people through and beyond cancer, and we use the outdoors to help young people re-engage after treatment. So we work really closely with Tina's Cancer Trust, Click Sergeant, lots of other cancer charities, all of the primary treatment centres around the UK. And we bring young people together who have been through cancer treatment. They live, sleep, eat on a boat for four days. They They go sailing, but actually it's not about the sailing. And what we try and do on board is get young people to spend time together. We try and create this quite special family atmosphere where they feel safe to either choose to share their experiences with other young people who've been through the same experience or 
actually decide not to and just decide to be young people together for four days. But understanding that they're not the odd one out, that all of the young people are the same. We try and help them to see a brighter future, to be that switch between the end of treatment and then going on to do other things, whether that's in employment or education or neither of those, something else in their life. But it's about that re-engagement with society following cancer treatment. And that's really important because actually, if you talk to a lot of young people who've been through treatment, life doesn't just go back to normal on the day that they finish treatment. The effects of their cancer and the treatment for their cancer continue for many, many years. So we're an organisation working with young people post-treatment to try and get them to re-engage. We happen to use the outdoors. We happen to use sailing in the outdoors, but actually we could be doing anything. It's about that engagement of young people after treatment. And who was Ellen? Ellen was a sailor and she took part in a, in a race called the Vendée Globe. And then she held the record for the single-handed round the world record. But the reason the trust, Ellen sold was a French charity. And I now apologise to anyone listening to this podcast who can speak French because I can't, and you're about to realise that, but the French charity that I pronounce as Chasson Son Cap, there are now people screaming at the <laughs> their podcast player, this fantastic French charity, we've done some work with them since, do exactly what we do. And one of Ellen's very early employees had a brother who had cancer, who'd sailed with a Chasson Son Cap, and persuaded Ellen to go and meet them and go sailing with them. And she was very nervous, but she loved it absolutely loved it loved meeting these young people carried on that involvement with those young people in the hospital in Paris throughout her campaign but then really wanted to set up something similar in the UK and that's where the Ellen MacArthur Cancer Trust comes from. Such a brilliant story and such important work indeed Frank and I know like pretty much every other charity in the sector that this past year when the pandemic struck you had to pivot and deliver services virtually can you talk about the impact that this past year has had on your organisation? We had a choice really 12 months ago. I was I was talking to someone about this earlier today, actually. It's almost 12 months to the day where we knew we had to cancel our trips. By this point last year, it was obvious that we weren't going to run any trips in 2020. And at that point, there was a school of thought that we furloughed all the staff. We put the keys through the letterbox and came back nine months later. And that was something that we considered. And what we kept coming back to was that young people really needed the MacArthur Cancer Trust. There were lots of reasons why, if you've been through cancer treatment, you were going to find COVID and lockdown really hard. So lots of young people who've been through cancer treatment are very completely understandably concerned about their health. There were young people who felt very afraid of COVID. And actually, if you think back to a year ago, we didn't know what we know about COVID now. I'm an asthmatic, and for a while they thought asthmatics were going to be really affected by COVID. That's a tiny comparison to having been through cancer treatment. But we had young people who felt very anxious about this disease, having been through cancer treatment. We had young people who'd been through isolation because of their cancer. So they'd had a bone marrow transplant, and then they'd have to do what all of us now experience in lockdown. A lot of our young people were classed as clinically extremely vulnerable, so they were having to to shield. So one argument was that we just close our doors and we put our keys through the letterbox and off we go and, and that's it. And then the, the other part was this desire to support these young people 
that we knew needed our support. And so we took the decision to do the latter. And then we went out to all of the young people that we work with. We went out to the professionals that we work with. We went out to our partnership organisations. We went out to everyone we knew who could have an opinion, but most importantly, the young people, and said, how can we support you through, I suppose what we thought at that time was going to be a two-month, three-month lockdown. I mean, I got the whole COVID prediction completely wrong. I told everyone we'd be back in the office in two weeks. Well, I don't think that one went quite right. So we talked to young people and partners about what could we do, and then we came up with this virtual summer. And it had the obvious things, you know, the quiz nights, the socials on Zoom. But then it also had some things that we got from young people. So one of the things that young people said to us is, can you do a, we call it trust letters, but basically it's a pen pal scheme. I remember someone saying this to me and I was like, look, this isn't going to work. People don't want to write, who writes letters these days? It's still going and it's going really well because actually that really appealed and the other thing that we realized is that what a lot of young people get when they come on our trips is that opportunity to talk about something that they wouldn't have talked about while they were going through treatments, but becomes really important post-treatment. You know, we get young people come on a trip. I used to skip all our trips. My background is working in outdoors with young people. I remember many years ago, I was skipping a trip and I was washing up and there was a conversation going on behind me that I needed to not be involved in in any way, shape or form, but I needed to listen to to make sure that the young people were okay. So I held the record for washing up one mug for about 40 minutes. And these young people were talking about things that they would never have talked about with professionals. They were talking about the after effects of their cancer treatment and how that affected their fertility and what each of them, who they were talking to. And they didn't need a 40-year-old bloke joining in but what they did need was and they needed to make sure that they were all okay and that so what we did on the trips was we used to have people would have these conversations and then we could help signpost people we could send people in the right direction they could have these conversations between themselves because actually if you're a 22 year old the person that you actually want to speak to your fertility or your your survivor guilt or your concerns about relapse or all of the other things that happen to young people post-treatment is other young people and you couldn't do that in COVID. So we started these conversations with, which were opportunities for young people to talk to each other, but have professionals there that could give advice, could signpost, could make sure everyone was okay. And we partnered with Teenage Cancer Trust and Click Sergeant. I know that's something that you might want to talk about a little later. We got their leading expert on X to come and talk, and then young people could go off in breakout rooms and talk to themselves. So we did all sorts of activities over the summer that really supported young people. And one of the reasons we were able to do that, our funders were wonderful in that we went to two funders in particular, you know, Children in Need and People's Postcode Lottery. We went to them and said, look, we can't run our trips this year. You're two of our biggest funders. You fund what we do, but this is what we're going to do instead. Will you repurpose your grant to us and and actually not only them but every almost every funder that we spoke to basically said you're still supporting young people just in a different way so we'd like you to support that so covid was really hard for everybody and harder for some people than others i feel very privileged i've come through covid reasonably unscathed my dad caught covid but he came through it i haven't lost anyone close to me as i said earlier i haven't had to but we 
as an organisation, I think we we managed to support young people throughout COVID, and that's what was really important. And perhaps that's taught us about other ways that we could support young people going forward. I think it's been a really interesting time for the sector because you've had to try different things, and we were lucky that our funders were very supportive. I love the example that you gave there, Frank, of the pen pal scheme. And actually what that came down to was encouraging and providing means for young people to connect with each other. And I think perhaps that's why it was so successful. And it's great to hear all of the learnings that you've had through this experience in terms of how the trust can better support young people recovering from cancer. And Frank, you mentioned there about the new partnership with Teenage Cancer Trust and Flick Sergeant. So perhaps we could just talk about that a bit more. I attended the Civil Society Spring Summit a couple of weeks back where you and fellow CEOs Kate Collins and Rachel Kirby Ryder talked about this partnership. So tell us about how this partnership came about and how you see it working. COVID really pushed it over the line. I mean, we've always really worked closely with Click Sergeant and Teenage Cancer Trust. We've always worked really well together. And you and I first met through the Coalition of Young People's Cancer Charities. And yes. Collaboration has always been a huge thing for me. You might not get me off the hobby horse of putting calls before brands. but So we'd always worked really closely with both organisations. And at the beginning of COVID, we probably would have ended up here without COVID, but it would have taken a lot longer. What we all went into COVID realising is that we were all going to be working in a different world. And at that point, we didn't. none of us really knew what the future held for our organisations. I don't believe there was a charity CEO 12 months ago wasn't thinking, oh, is income just going to stop? How are we going to support our beneficiaries? So it came about quicker because of COVID, because actually we went, right, we need to make this work and we need to do it quick. What the partnership allows us to do is to, to really cut down on the duplication between the three organisations, but then also to really effectively signpost to each other. So there is no longer any barrier between click sergeant saying to someone, you should go and access this from Teenage Cancer Trust or Teenage Cancer Trust going, we're going to signpost you together the McCarthy Cancer Trust. So I think what it's really allowed us to do is have really open conversations at all levels. So at the chief exec level, at the service lead level, at the frontline level that says the three organisations work together and we will make sure that if someone is receiving services from Click Sergeant, that they're also receiving support from Teenage Cancer Trust and from the Ellen MacArthur Cancer Trust. I mean, for the Ellen MacArthur Cancer Trust, it was a lot simpler. We're tiny compared to the other two and we rely, the vast majority of young people who access our services come via Teenage Cancer Trust and Click Sergeant. So in terms of ourselves, it was formalising the best practice in the best parts of the country. But that then allowed us also to to get some standardisation across the UK. We work with young people from Aberdeen to Falmouth and, and everywhere in between. And it just meant that we had that formal relationship across the UK. I think what it does is it puts young people at the centre, not brand and I think this is the really important thing that we as a sector need to change we think about our organizations and we shouldn't think about our organizations we should think about the people that the organizations are there or the it's not always people but the cause of that charity is not just about your organization it's about wider so does it matter if a young person does something online 
in COVID, whether that happens to have a Teenage Cancer Trust logo, a Click Sergeant logo, or an Ellen MacArthur Cancer Trust logo on the Zoom page. No, it doesn't. Actually, what matters is that young person is getting the support. And that's hopefully what the partnership does, is that it enables us to worry a little bit less about, is my logo front and centre? Worry more about, actually, is that young person getting the services that they need? And I think, I mean, I can't speak for Teenage Cancer Trust or Click Sergeant, but I think that's where the partnership gets really exciting. I think the partnership will mean that young people are better supported. And that, at the end of the day, is what matters. And it's interesting, the funders' reaction to it. I know someone asked a question at the summit. Um, the funders' reaction to it has been superb. So I've got a, a high net worth funder who I speak to once a year and very businesslike, has a real personal connection to our cause. And was so delighted that Click Sergeant and Teenage Cancer Trust and ourselves had come together because the reason they support us is, yes, because they like us and they like what we do and we've got that relationship, but actually their link is to the cause and to young people. And I think it's the way forward for the sector is to think more about how do we collaborate so that we're achieving our mission. There are very few charities who have a completely unique mission to anybody else and actually we should all be working together to achieve mission rather than brand awareness or the size of our turnover or how many staff we employ. Yes I think it's so important as you say there Frank to essentially put the young person or the service user at the heart of that service delivery and therefore this collaboration is vital in achieving that. But I'm curious about something that you mentioned earlier in terms of barriers. So what barriers existed or perhaps what stopped you from doing some of this signposting before you sort of entered into this formal partnership with Click Sergeant and Teenage Cancer Trust? We did some of it, but it's now front and centre. So actually now what happens is the service leads for Click and Teenage Cancer Trust and the Ellen McCarthy Cancer Trust all get together once a month on a Zoom call. Doesn't take very long, but they share. Kate, Rachel and I always spoke that now there is a formal structure to catching up. Some things happened at their best, but what now happens is, is there's a formal structure that these things will always happen and that they happen in a much more organised, formal way so things don't get missed. And it's at every level of the organisation. So some of these things happened in best practice but they didn't always happen and now actually they'll always happen and I think the other thing about formalizing the partnership is it becomes much less about individuals if I left tomorrow a new chief exec would come in but that partnership would already be there and the same for the service lead or so it's formalized and it's got a structure and I think that's the difference which hopefully will mean it will continue for the long term. I noticed in the chat during your session at the Civil Society Summit that there was a lot of talk from the audience about mergers and was this partnership just sort of the first step towards a merger? And therefore, I feel like I have to ask the question, why not just merge? I mean, in terms of the Ellen MacArthur Cancer Trust, I don't think a £1 million charity, I hate turning over with a mega of a charity, but the Ellen MacArthur Cancer Trust, it would have been an acquisition rather than a merger. I got the chat afterwards because when you're delivering it to the site, you can't see the chat. And I think you shared a very interesting stat, and I'm hoping you've remembered it because I can't remember the exact details. I don't think mergers always are this 
great success and, and I'm sure you're going to share the stat that you shared. Yes, the, the stat was basically some research collated by Harvard Business Review that shows that 70 to 90 percent of mergers actually fail to unlock expected yeah. value and yeah. therefore there's a lot of sort of effort and resources uh, and time that's taken up trying to merge sometimes disparate organizations, dip, disparate systems and trying to align everything which can take away from the cause and from actually delivering for the people at the centre of what the organisation is trying to achieve. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for that. So much better than me. Thank you. Um, yeah, <laughs> I think one, I don't think they're, they're that effective. And secondly, Teenage Cancer Trust and Click Sergeant and ourselves, we're actually quite different organisations. We have some unique points. Teenage Cancer Trust only works with over 13s. Click Sergeant works with families and young people from birth to 24. We work with young people from 8, 9 to 24-ish. We're, we're much more flexible at the top end. So there are lots of differences like that where we're quite unique, where actually a merger might lose some of that uniqueness, whereas by collaborating in the way that we do, we don't lose that uniqueness, but we get all of the advantages of a merger. And I think the other thing was, Yes, this would have happened without COVID, I think, eventually, but it certainly accelerated because of COVID. If we'd started talking about a merger, we'd probably still all be sitting around talking about a merger now. I mean, I know people say it doesn't take that long, but I think sometimes the merger conversation doesn't actually address the issue. The issue is, are you doing the best for your beneficiaries, your cause? And I think sometimes, and maybe this is wrong, I'm not saying I'm right on this, I might listen back to this in six months and go, God, did you say that, Frank? But sometimes I feel in this sector that we measure organisation success in a corporate way, so in a turnover, and mergers are about increasing your turnover. Perhaps that's not how we should measure third sector organisations. We should measure third sector organisations by the difference and the impact that we're making. As I say, I'm really wrong about that. And there may be great arguments to why that's completely wrong. And I'm on Twitter, at Frank Fletcher. You can come and tell me why I'm wrong. And I'm not saying I'm 100% right with that, but it just, it feels to me a little bit corporate-like. You have to merge, you know, like mergers and acquisitions and you've got to get bigger and bigger is better. Well, maybe bigger is better, but maybe sometimes it isn't. And maybe sometimes a small organisation working in partnership with a big organisation can be much more impactful. As I say, happy to be challenged on that. And I may listen back to this in the future and go, what were you saying? But but that's certainly how I feel now. Well, I actually happen to agree with you, Frank. And I think there is a tendency sometimes in the sector to equate success with income as opposed to actually focusing in on impact. And I see this partnership almost as an anti-merger, but perhaps is really paving the way forward by providing charities with a model in terms of how to collaborate going further. Because if you think about why a charity was set up, it was presumably that there was a gap that was identified for a particular set of beneficiaries and the charity was setting up a service in order to fill that gap and in order to serve that need and therefore when you have organizations all focused on serving a specific group of beneficiaries as you say in merging perhaps some of those constituent groups would actually get overlooked yeah absolutely we print the top charities by income it's a very strange way of measuring success success is impact or 
you could almost argue, you know, success is your charity closing because you've achieved your mission. We've done what we needed to do. Now we're going to close the doors and, and go and do something else. That's probably <laughs> yes. a much deeper, longer. But, you know, I had a friend who closed the charity. So someone I know really well worked with injured servicemen coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan and doing something very similar to us, actually, using the outdoors to get service people back into competitive sports through sailing. They got to a point where they, they wanted to close because they'd done their mission. Thankfully, there were no longer injured servicemen coming back because, thankfully, we were no longer fighting those wars. And it's really interesting when I talked to the two people who set up that organisation who I knew really well and respected, you know, they got a lot of resistance to closing. And they were having to say to people, no, there are no longer people for us to support. Therefore, it's right that we close our doors because we shouldn't just continue because people like the organisation. We've done our work. We've worked with these service personnel who've come back. We've got them involved now in a support in a sport where they can be competitive because what they really missed because they missed competitive sport because they've had amputations. Our mission is done. It's actually time for us to close. And I remember at the time they had people sort of phoning them up saying, no, you can't close. You're great. You're a fantastic organisation. They're like, you're missing the point. We've done our job. Our job is done. It's now time for us to go and do something else. And actually both those people have gone off and done other things that are equally as impressive. But people get very attached to your brand and your organisation as opposed to this is what we need to do. I think it takes a real particular bravery almost from a leader to focus on not necessarily just the longevity of an organization for the sake of it but actually looking at okay who are we here to serve what is our purpose and as you say if that mission has been achieved then perhaps shutting up shop is the right thing to do and those resources and donations actually can be diverted elsewhere where the need is still present absolutely Frank, I'd like to talk now about working in a different world, as you called it, particularly in the post-pandemic context. I mean, last year, we all had to pivot to working and living in and through a pandemic. And I actually think that now we all need to pivot again to adapt to working in a world post-COVID. And I'd like to know, what does that look like for you and your organisation? And how do you think we as leaders can best support our teams to adapt? I don't know yet. I think it's really hard. We've had some great advantages from working from home, as it were. We've employed a couple of people this year that we wouldn't have employed pre-COVID because they are always going to work from home. We've got a base on the Isle of Wight. We've got a base in Largs on the west coast of Scotland. And not everyone wants to live on the west coast of Scotland or the Isle of Wight. And we've probably lost good candidates because of that. And, you know, we recently employed a fantastic fundraiser And one of the reasons we were able to employ that person is that they don't want to live on the island. They'll continue to work from home post the pandemic. I think the other issue that we have as an organisation is we're an organisation that that works across the UK. So we work with every primary treatment centre in the UK. We work with young people from from across the, the UK. And yet we have our offices and our bases in probably the two least diverse parts of this country and that means that our organization doesn't represent the young people that we work with and maybe this is not having to work in an office every day might also help with that so we don't have to employ people now who want to live on the island or or live in largs. I think this has worked for some people 
I think some people have loved working from home and there are bits of it that I like. I get a bit more time. I don't travel now at the moment. I'll go back to traveling, obviously. But, you know, I can go for a run in the morning and still be at my desk reasonably early. I don't spend 40 minutes walking to and from the office or an hour and a half getting to London on a train. And it works for me because, as I said at the beginning, I live in a nice house with a garden. I've got my own workspace. I'm comfortable, you know, and in January when it was cold and I wanted to turn the heating on, I'm very lucky that I just went, oh, it's cold, I'll turn the heating on. Not everyone lives in that world. And I think that that's the challenge we have is that much as it works for me to do this, I hate it, by the way. I absolutely hate it. And I'm not going to do it very much longer because as soon as they say I can go back to an office, I'm back. So as most of it works for me, I know there are people in our team that it doesn't work for. And also, I don't know if it's great for people early on in their career. And I think that people need to have that interaction. I don't think you can run a charity forever without an office or without some interaction space. I think where we'll end up, and as I say, I, I don't know, and I'm hoping that none of the team listens to this. I'm sure the team will listen to this, and now they'll hold me to what I'm about to say. <laughs> I think we'll end up with this hybrid model seems to be the buzzword. Mm. But I think we'll end up with people choosing perhaps to work in the office three days a week, but then working from home for two days. We've now got two people working for the organisation who will always work from home, but will come in occasionally. But I think the balance to be found is that there are some people who really need that interaction. And I also think there are some people, I've done Zoom calls where I'm in people's bedrooms. You don't want to be sitting in your bedroom on a Zoom call to your chief exec. I mean, you just don't, do you? So I think it's really hard, but I think we need to be careful not to jump at, we can all work from home forevermore. And I think I'll travel less. So I think I will still travel. I still will need to go to meet people. But I think that I'll do some things. I'll say, well, let's just grab a coffee and have a Zoom rather than me travel to you or to me. But we should lose that interaction. I mean, that's the thing that I've missed so much. I've missed that. And I've tried to replicate it in all sorts of ways. But I've missed that grabbing a five-minute conversation with someone while you make a cup of tea in the kitchen. I've tried to replicate that by picking up the phone to the team. I've tried to replicate that by, you know, all the things that everyone has done, Zoom hangouts, me just picking up the phone to people. But you don't know whether you've caught them at a good moment, a bad moment. But whereas if you walk into the kitchen and there's someone having a, making a cup of tea and you end up having a five-minute conversation, you find out more in that five minutes. So I, I think we'll end up with a hybrid scheme where if people want to work. I mean, we've always been flexible. You know, if someone's having a, I don't know, if someone to come around to fix the washing machine, you know, we've always had that flexibility of work from home. And there's some people who are saying to us, we really want to do this. I've got a couple of members of the team who are saying this is so much better for me, Frank. I get so much more done. So, yeah, I don't know the answer. I think it'll be really interesting to see where we are in a year. On a personal level, I've found coming out of lockdown harder than going into lockdown. I found going into lockdown quite easy. I actually now find the whole, in three months' time, forget the law and the government regulations, but in three months' time, am I going to want to shake hands with people? I know that sounds really weird, but are they going to want to shake hands with me? Am I going to want to get on a tube? Am I going to, going to want to get on a train? How am I going to feel when I'm in a big group of people? So 
we have a challenge as a sector as humanity of how do we come out of this and I think it's going to be really strange. I think you've shared some really interesting insights and reflections there Frank. I know we've all seen huge benefits from remote working this past year and indeed companies like Twitter and Facebook are now permanently allowing their staff to work from anywhere and of course to what you talked about there that remote working actually enables organizations to be able to access more diverse talent uh, and essentially talent irrespective of geography. But I do agree that social interaction element has been lost to some degree and there's been a lot more need for intentionality around communication and in some ways that formalizes it and you actually lose that sort of person to person interaction. So it will be interesting to see how different organizations and indeed different individuals are going to be able to cope. I mean, you talked about coming out of lockdown being harder than going into lockdown and sort of alluded to some of the the questions around what it might be like to be on a crowded tube again but what other reasons come to mind in terms of why coming out of lockdown might be harder people laugh at me sometimes because i i come over as an extrovert i'm very bouncy i'm very sociable but actually i hate things like drink parties i hate things like <laughs> networking events I absolutely hate them Really do. I can't imagine anything worse than going to a networking drinks evening and having to go and talk to little groups of three people I've never met. People say I'm an extrovert, but I find I'm quite shy underneath all of that. And I think it's a bravado to get over that. It's been quite nice for me. I can I can be in my house with my family who I love and don't have to see anyone else. And that sounds awful, but there's a couple of times when I quite enjoyed that every weekend I wasn't rushing here or going there. Or But I don't think it's very good for you long term, by the way. And I wouldn't want to do that long term. And I think actually long term, that takes its toll. When it recently became okay to meet up to six people outside, lucky that a couple of the team lived quite local to me and ended up in a bit of a green space in Cows, looks out at sea, looks over the beach. And I, and I met a couple of the team on a Friday late afternoon at five o'clock and we, we all sat and had a glass of wine and chatted. And it was felt really strange. It was like, you're not in a little box. How do I relate to you? And I know that sounds really strange, but we've forgotten how to sit in a meeting together. Are we going to sit in meetings with six people? And when we want to speak, we're going to raise our hand. Like we're in school again. <laughs> yeah, when we've when we said our bit, we'll unraise our hand and we'll have little cards that put emoji clap signs up. Um, so I think it will be difficult. I think it will be hard to go back to being in groups of people and I think we will find that hard I think you know the first time there are 10 people in an office I think we will all feel a little bit like oh this is strange I mean I hope I'm wrong I'm quite often wrong so I may be wrong and actually the first day will feel a little bit weird but then the second day we'll all be eating cake and making tea and having all of that sort of office interaction that makes work fun so I hope I'm wrong but I I feel that people are going to find this mentally quite tough. Yes, I see what you mean. Frank, tell us now a bit about your background and your career journey. I mean, how have you gotten to where you are today? In terms of my present job, I just happen to be in the right place at the right time. So for most of my working life, I've worked in the outdoors in terms of outdoor education and young people. Previously to that, I worked in hospitality. I actually ran a pub 
in my 20s in London. Oh, wow. Which I loved and taught me lots about people. I think everyone should go work by the bar for a little bit because you learn more about human beings and human nature standing on the other side of the bar than you will anywhere else. So I went to a pub in London on the Fulham Road, actually. People who follow me on Twitter know I'm a big Chelsea fan. I ran the first pub. If you came out of Stamford Bridge and turned left, it was the first pub that opened on match day. Actually, when I first left uh, school, I went and worked in a hostel for the homeless with CSV, the Community Service Volunteers. Obviously, the third sector had a calling early on. But then I went and did other things. And then I ended up working in outdoor education and working with young people. I was working for an organisation that, again, uses the outdoors to, you know, works with kids from inner cities, works with young offenders, uses the outdoors in a similar way to the trust. And I knew Ellen and I knew Ellen's business partner. We'd sort of got to know each other over the years and they wanted to set up the charity. And for the first 18 months of the Ellen McCarthy Country Trust, I was a trustee. I think I was probably the most unsuitable trustee, but I was the right trustee at the right time. I stood down for being a trustee and the trust had a great manager, someone that I'd encouraged to apply for the job and he took it on and he was doing a great job and then for various reasons he, he needed to leave. I was coming to the end of a project I was working on and Ellen uh, basically asked me to apply and Mark, her business partner, who was the chair of trustees at the time, asked me to apply. Yeah, and I've been involved ever since really. So I've been very lucky and then I've grown with the organisation. And I suppose it comes back to my superpower comment at the beginning. I don't feel like I have a great superpower or something that means that I can be chief exec. I think I've ended up in the job and I've grown with the job. I think that in terms of leadership, I think it's all about people. We forget about that sometimes at our cost. Everything is about relationships. The young people that you work with, whether it's the people who work for the organisation, whether it's your trustees, whether it's your funders, whether it's your partners, it's about building those relationships with people. And I'm okay at that. In terms of leadership, I think my leadership style has changed so much in the last 15 years. I try not to look back or look forward too much. I try to live within the present. But actually, I look back at 15 years and go, wow, if I could go back now redo the last 15 years with the knowledge that I have and maybe a little bit of wisdom I'm not trying to sound wise but if I could go back and redo the last 15 years with what I've now learned and the knowledge that I've got now my god that would just be fantastic so I think I've grown I think I've been chief exec for a long time and you know should chief execs hang around for that long I do have that honest conversation with my trustees every year and at the point that you don't want me to be chief exec anymore this isn't it doesn't have to be ugly and difficult. It just has to be an honest conversation. The one thing I've always tried to do is grow. And there's some great ways for chief execs and charities to grow. I mean, I've, I've got a mentor through the Kilfinnan group who don't charge for mentoring. I have a fantastic mentor. I got a bursary to do the Windsor Leadership course that I would highly recommend any charity chief exec to do. I find Akivo a fantastic resource. As long as you're growing, your leadership style will change. And I think my leadership journey has been about me learning and growing rather than, and I had a great, I mean, you know, I've had a couple of great bosses. Um, the organisation I worked at before the Ellen MacArthur Cancer Trust, I had the, one of the most inspirational people I ever worked for. When he left the organisation, 
the guy who took over as, as equally inspirational. So I, I've worked for two very inspirational people, and I think that taught me a lot. In terms of leadership, I think it's about growth. And I think that's what we as leaders should be thinking about every day is how am I going to grow for my organisation and the people within the organisation? I don't know if that makes sense. That might sound like a lot of rambling nonsense. I hope not. No, it makes a lot of sense. In fact, my next question to you was going to be, what advice would you give to yourself on day one of first becoming a CEO? But I think you've already answered that. So perhaps I will ask you, what is most inspiring about being the CEO of the Ellen MacArthur Cancer Trust? So I will answer the first question. So the thing that I wish I had known on day one of being chief exec was to get rid of the word I and replace it with the word we. And I came across that a few years into my career as chief exec. And I wish that I'd learned that on day one because, and I know it sounds a really simple thing, but it changes the way that your team thinks. The one thing I'd want to know is start using the word we and not just using the word, but believe in it's we rather than I, because it is we rather than I. And by using the word we, you realise that it's we, not I. Because, I, I, yeah, so that'd be. And sorry, what was the second question? I answered the first one and then I can't remember. What the... Yes. And actually, Frank, that was really good advice. And just being very conscious about using we rather than I, I think is very important. The second question was around what is most inspiring about being CEO of the Ellen MacArthur Cancer Trust? That's really easy, the young people we work with. So we've got about 150 volunteers, of which about 75 are adults who accessed our services as young people. They are constant inspiration for me. So, I mean, one of our trustees, we've got a fantastic trustee called Claire Amalados, and Claire now is civil servant at the Department of Health. She's, I think, deputy strategy lead for the vaccine rollout of the UK so she's one of the brightest most intelligent people I know I met Claire when she was 15 and I've had the absolute pleasure of meeting them as young people and then seeing them become volunteers within our organization and play a huge part in our organization I still try and get involved I mean it's not possible as much as it was but I still try and get involved a little bit with the young people on the trips and so the inspiration is the young people and you've worked in the sector, you know as much as I do that there are some amazingly inspirational young people out there who've gone through something that I can't even begin to comprehend as an adult. And I look back at me at 14, 15 and cannot comprehend how I would have coped at 14, 15 and yet they they come through and inspire us. The trust has grown. So I started, my early involvement with the trust was very much skippering and being really involved with young people and as you grow as an organization you see less of the front line but I still see how inspirational the young people are that's what inspires me every day and the team we've got a fantastic team I've only seen them in little boxes on a screen for 12 months but we do have the most fantastic team Yes, I completely agree with you, Frank. When I was the chief exec of Children with Cancer UK, it was always the interaction with the young cancer survivors that was just so incredibly inspiring and just hearing their journeys and what they've been through and the wisdom and energy and joie de vivre that they have coming out the other side is just incredible and really takes the level of sort of job satisfaction to a whole new other height and another stratosphere. 
Frank, I was just reflecting there on your comment about the we, not I. And I think that's so important in the context of collaboration as well. And one of the questions that I actually wanted to ask you earlier on when we were talking about the partnership was about whether you have any advice for other charity leaders who may be considering the form of collaboration that you've entered into with Teenage Cancer Trust and Click Sargent. I mean, what are some of the challenges or pitfalls to look out for? What would you advise other leaders who are considering this? So I think that the comment you made about we, not I, is really important there because it's about the beneficiaries. It's about the cause rather than you as an individual. And and when I talked about we, not I, I wasn't talking just about the word I'm talking about the whole mindset and if you are doing what is right for the cause or your beneficiaries or the mission that your charity has you leave the I the brand at the door and in terms of practical advice buying from the top we all talk to our board of trustees about this as chief execs we were very committed to it Therefore, the organization got behind it. It's about those relationships. But the important thing is, and I had this conversation the other day, I had quite a challenging conversation on our leaders. We had a leadership team meeting and talking about something else, not about this partnership, but about something else. And we, we had quite a challenging conversation among us about, this isn't about the Ellen MacArthur Cancer Trust. This is about young people with cancer. That's the thing that Click and Tina's Cancer Trust and the Ellen McCarthy Camps Trust and Kate and Rachel and myself managed to do is go, this is not about our organisations. This is about young people with cancer. So if you can, whatever your area that you work in, you can go, this is not about I, the organisation, and go, this is about our mission, our cause, our beneficiaries, then it falls into place. And then it's about relationships. We had the relationship with Kate and with Rachel. We'd all, we'd all worked for our organisations for a long time. We knew each other. So just that relationship where you've got that trust, but you've also got that relationship where it's fun to do, I suppose, actually. And it's the right thing to do. As a sector, we, we have less and less resource. So let's come together and make more of a difference and make more of an impact. Frank, I think that is a great place to bring this conversation to an end. Thank you so much. It's been great chatting with you. Thank you for being a guest on the show. Thank you so much. It's been great fun. It's not a little stressful. It's actually harder than I thought it was going to be, but I have really enjoyed it. I just hope I haven't said anything that's going to come back to haunt me in years to come. Well, lovely to have you on and glad to hear that you enjoyed it. Thank you. Frank is so right in saying that as chief execs, we need to focus on we, not I, and that the concept of we is a mindset that we need to bring into every interaction. So it's not just about my team or my organisation, but that our focus and impact is truly on the cause or the end beneficiary we are trying to serve. If we are able to achieve that level of selfless collaboration, then our whole charity sector would be the better for it. And that brings us to the end of season two. I've had the absolute privilege of interviewing some brilliant chief execs this season and I'm looking forward to bringing you more inspirational leadership conversations after the summer in season three. I'm so grateful to all of our followers and listeners who helped the show reach the top of the Apple podcast rankings for the non-profit podcast category. It is such an incredible endorsement of our content and the rankings and reviews really make a difference because they enable more people to find and listen to the podcast. So if you enjoyed the show, 
please click the subscribe button on your podcast app and consider leaving us a five-star review. Visit our website, thecharityceo.com, for full show details and to submit suggestions or questions for future guests. Thank you for listening. Thank you.